right, we're going to do what we always do before every uh, preaching of the Word. We're going to talk to our young ones, give our young ones, and everyone here a heads up of what the sermon text is going to be about and what the sermon is going to be about. Okay, so kids, if I could have your attention, there's this weird thing uh, that happened a, a couple years ago. There was this recording that went out. I just, I just heard about this from one of my buddies. Uh, there's, a, there's a voice uh, that says this word over and over and over again. And uh, people don't always hear the same thing. We're going to try this. I should have gone over this with Antonio. I didn't. This, if this doesn't work, it's my fault. But we're going to try this. So y'all listen. I'm going to try and play this over my mic. Do y'all hear that? Richard, what do you hear? Say, say it again. Kim, Kimmy? Give me. Okay. Anybody else? What did y'all hear? Paul? What? Yimmy. Okay. Anybody hears? Colby, what'd you hear? Yammy. Peyton, what did you hear? Laurel. Did anybody else hear Laurel? That's all I hear. Anybody else hear something different? Elizabeth, what'd you hear? Gimme. Okay. Who else? Go ahead. Yes. Char gimme. Charlotte says gimme. What did you hear? Gammy. Another gammy. Anybody? Jack, what'd you hear? Jimmy. All right, y'all. If y'all heard something different, just shout it out. I, so I did a poll. Jimmy, another Jimmy. I heard, I heard, I did a poll. I asked some people, uh, Laurel, uh, Yanny, Yammy, Yiri, and Jiri, and everything y'all just said. Okay, it's just really, y'all go home, and it's this thing of Laurel or Yanni. Uh, it's like, they, you remember when they came out, did y'all ever see, kids, did y'all ever see the dress test? Where there was like a dress, it was purple, or there was like a yellow or gold one. Which one did you see? This is the same thing, only audio. Okay. Here's what that has to do with what we're talking about today. The Bible says, the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, and he came down from heaven, and he became a man, and he lived the hardest life for you, obeying everything God told us to do, and he did it perfectly. And then he gave up his life on the cross to save us from our sins, for all the ways we don't obey. We hear that gospel of Jesus came to serve us and to save us, and we think, great, man, Jesus is like this great helper. Uh, Jesus is just awesome. He's about making my hopes and my dreams come true. The, G the gospel says Jesus came and he gave up everything to save us, to love us. And we think, I think what I heard is Jesus is like a good luck charm and he wants me to win at life. Okay? No, 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 no. What, what, here's what happened. When the fall happened, God the Father looks at God the Son and says, hey, will you go save this rebellious people or they are gonna perish forever in their sins? And Jesus, what if, what if the Son of God had looked at his Father and said, man, what do I gotta do? I gotta go down there and like live a really poor life and, and live the way they're supposed to live and, and then, I gotta, then I gotta suffer, not just die on a cross, I gotta suffer like all the wrath for all their sins? That sounds like a terrible idea. I'd rather stay up in here in heaven and rule as king and, and just have an awesome time with the angels and everybody up here. I'm not going. What if Jesus had said that? He could have. 
He wouldn't have been wrong. But if he had said that, then there would be no hope for us. There would be no gospel. There would be no salvation. We praise Jesus every Sunday, and we want to praise him every day because he said yes. He said yes, I'll go down. I will become a man, and I will do everything that they have failed to do. And then I will pay the ultimate penalty for all their failures. I will go and I will serve them and suffer for them. That's the gospel. And so that, and that's what we are supposed to hear. And the so what, like so what for you and me, is that the Bible does not say that Jesus saves you to make you happy all the time. He doesn't save you to make you comfy cozy. He doesn't save you to make you rich. He doesn't save you to make you super, super successful and the best at everything you do. No, the gospel says that you've been saved by the greatest servant in order to love and serve him and other people. That's the gospel. And the gospel tells us that that is true freedom. Uh, That leads to a blessed, awesome, eternal future in heaven where there is no more sadness, no more sin, and everything is perfect. Right now on this earth, it's hard, but we know where we're going. It's all because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. Okay, so here's where we're going. We're in 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with all these divisions in the church uh, that he planted back in Corinth. So he's writing this letter, and he's just kind of going from one problem to the next, addressing all these problems, so it's a super applicable letter. Okay? This passage that we're getting into this morning, it flows out of what has just come before. Uh, It's the shortest passage. Yay! Shortest passage we've covered in 1 Corinthians. And it is one of, if not the most difficult passage we've ever covered on a Sunday. Everyone I've read, everyone I've listened to, I've listened to a lot of people uh, this week, everyone talking about this passage says it is the most difficult passage in the Bible. Uh, So here's my guarantee. I guarantee you that I will, in one way or another, offend every person here this morning. Male, female, young, old, single, married, etc., etc., for serious. Uh, And seriously, if later you want to ask questions, you want to come and disagree with me, you want to come and, and debate me afterwards, super terrific, like for serious. And what you can do is you can just come and join the debate that is still going on in my head. Okay, so uh, I do also promise that we're going to try to make sense of of all of it here, okay? Like we're not going to just not deal with that one. Uh, There's so many trees here to stand underneath, as it were, and admire and examine. Like what does that, what is that? Uh, But we're going to miss the forest for the trees kind of thing, so we're not going to do that. We do want to, I think it's better to see the whole forest uh, which means there's going to be stuff that I'm going to try and touch on everything, but there's just going to be stuff we could say so much more about, okay? So please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. 
The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. So if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The word of the Lord. Okay. Some, um, just, you want to go have lunch? Let's just, let's just, uh, some want to describe this passage uh, the way Winston Churchill, the former British prime minister, once described Russia as uh, this is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And I don't think it's that bad once you answer all of the enigmatic References and concepts. It's joking. Not joking. <laughs> so, let's just, here we go. Let's dive in. Come on, y'all. Let's start with the immediate context. Okay, immediate context. Verse 2, Paul reminds the church about these very important traditions that he has explained when he was with them. He's like, hey, I've told you all this stuff when I was with you. All these traditions. And he was with them for a while. So it makes total sense that they, the church, had a better context for what Paul is saying here than we do, okay? Which means we've got to piece this thing together, get inside the mind of the biblical theologian that Paul was, okay? That's immediate context. Surrounding context. Paul was just saying that your Christian freedom, what, what he was just saying before this passage, your Christian freedom is really not about you, it's about giving of yourself selflessly to serve others, to push others closer to Jesus and closer to each other as the church, and to draw those outside the church into the church and closer to Jesus. Like, that's what your Christian freedom is for. You're free from your sin and death to do that. Okay, now the greater context. The greater context is Paul is now applying that Christian freedom to gathered worship. So here, it's traditions, you know, the praying, uh, the stuff of prophesying. The second half of chapter 11, what we're coming to next week, it's all about communion. The rest of this passage, it goes from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 14. It is all about gathered worship, the worship of the church. So, this is a big so. What he says here is not about Gender roles, which is a phrase that I don't know is helpful in any context. 
It is not about gender roles. This is not about societal roles, which we're not talking about today. Paul is talking about roles in the church, church roles. But not just church roles. There's this question uh, of who is Paul talking about right here? Is he talking about all men and all women? No, because we just said. No, we're talking about roles in the church. He's talking about people in the church, okay? So is he talking about all men and all women in the church? No. No, not, not firsthand. No. no uh, the words for man and woman here, it's standard vocabulary for husband and wife. The ESV translation gets it right here. Uh, this is about marital roles. It has to do, it does have to do with all of us in the church. We're coming to that. It does. But to see how it has to do with all of us in the church, we first got to see properly uh, how this is about people in the church who are married. It's talking about husbands and wives in the church. So we can, the, the biggest key here is just how it's talking about the interrelationship between husband and wife, but also he references Adam and Eve as like the big example and their marital roles. So Paul is not talking, he is not saying, and he never does say that man is the head of woman. Every man is the head over every woman. Every man has some authority over every woman. Never says that in the Bible. Not true. So that's not, that's not what he's talking about. Uh, he's talking about a, a husband's headship over a wife's headship. Let's just be really clear. He's also not talking about like every husband, everyone who is a husband has some authority over every woman who is a wife. Wives, you... N- <laughs> yeah, like as if. Like we get that. But just to be clear, um, he's talking about a husband's headship over his wife, which raises the question... Do I believe a husband has authority over his wife? In Mississippi, we're coming there. In Mississippi, so here's how I want to answer that. In Mississippi in 1952, I, I think we brought this up way, way, way back in the day. This is a wonderful illustration. Mississippi, 1952, there's a debate about legalizing whiskey. And, and I do not, here's God, I really don't mean to offend anyone and their convictions about drinking. Okay, just, just give me this uh, little bit here. Uh, he's talking, he's debating about legalizing of whiskey and this young congressman, Noah Sweat, uh, he's put on the spot and he's asked, what do you, where do you stand on this debate? And this is how he responds. <clears throat> if when you say, like, do you support the legalization of whiskey? He says, if, you, if when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and woman from the pinnacle of righteousness, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together, that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips, and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes. If you mean, if you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts the spring in the old gentleman's step on a frosty, crispy morning, if you mean the drink which enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness and to forget, if only for a little while, life's great tragedies and heartaches and sorrows, if you mean that drink, the sale of which 
rich pours into our treasuries untold millions of dollars which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children, our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our pitiful aged and infirm, to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am for it. This is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise. It's so good. Oh, man. Okay. So, do I believe in male headship, husband headship over a wife? If... By male headship, you mean the abuses of headship, then certainly I am against it. This thing that men are smarter than women, this thing that men or husbands are uh, less emotional, more emotionally stable than women, I am against it because that is all false. That men are relatively more important than women, that women are susceptible to temptation, that men, that men need, to, husbands need to be more manly. And wives need to be more submissive. <laughs> that wives should not have a vote in the church. That women are not fit to hold any authority in any sphere of life. That woman is constitutionally fitted to be, it, it, that woman is not constitutionally fitted to be the asserter, maintainer, and defender of the Christian faith with all love and sincerity. I'm against it because those things are wrong. But if when you say male headship, you mean what the Bible means, then certainly I am for it. Head, in the literal sense of this word here, it means the head of a body. Eyes, ears, nose. The head of a body. It can even mean like the head of a mountain, the peak. But it's the head of something physical, literally. Uh, and then head, in the metaphorical sense, means authority. So there's this one scholar who went through 2,336 examples in Greek literature of the, you know, this word for head. And in every single case, and he tried so many ways to find a way around this, but he, he concluded in every single case, it either means the literal sense or the metaphorical sense, either a head on a body or authority. There's no way around it. So the concept is there in scripture. So then I am certainly for it. This is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise. What's the concept? Is a big question. Well, first, let's start with this. First, the plain suggestion in this passage is that women pray and prophesy in public worship of the church, and this is a recognized and accepted practice by Paul. There are women, this is in public worship gatherings, and there are women who are praying and who are prophesying, and Paul says, that's awesome. Nothing here that intimates disapproval by Paul. You have the same language describing men doing this in verse 4 with no approval. What these are, this is him starting off what he's going to come to and expound on in chapters 12, 13, 14. These are spiritual gifts given for the common good of the church itself. Okay? That's what's going on here. She raises the question, so then, why is a husband the head of his wife, and what's that got to do with worship? And here's where Paul refers to Adam and Eve. To say that there are authority structures in the kingdom of God 
before the fall. There, ha, there has always been this, this authority structure given to the people of, uh, people of God from God. And Paul says that it's the order of creation that matters and tells us that there is this marital authority structure of the husband over the wife. God is over man because he makes man in his image. Uh, man is over his wife because she is made from man in his image and in the image of God. They're both the image of God, completely, fully independent of one another. But there is this order. And then it says in Genesis chapter 5, we go into this, but their children, they're the image of Adam. And so there's authority of the parents over the children. Okay, so Paul says that there is, there, uh, it's the order of creation that matters. It tells us that there's this marital authority structure of the husband over the wife. We could talk about the kid stuff. It's outside our, our, our bounds today. But before the fall, uh, the husband's responsibility is to care for the wife. And it is, we are told in the Old Testament and in the New Testament very clearly that it is a self-sacrificial love. It is a self-sacrificial love. And at the same time, it is balanced by the husband having authority over the wife and the two of them having their authority over the kids and Adam having the authority of everyone who's to come after him like he's a king. Now, if that sounds horribly sexist, if that sounds misogynistic, if that sounds patriarchal, if that sounds shocking, that is totally understandable. Like, that, that is. We're going to try to make sense of that, but you just need to know up front, like, that's totally understandable. Like, you're not crazy. What is meant here is it's meant to capture something that is beautiful. And this design, in the beginning, before the fall, it is completely free of sin. There's no sin even in the slightest in this relationship between Adam and Eve. There's no problem between the two of them with the arrangement. Because Adam's authority over his wife is a self-sacrificial love and care. And they're not fallen. Uh, Here's the big what if. What if? What if Adam and Eve had not fallen? If they had not fallen, they would have gone on to populate the whole world. The whole world with, with, uh, as a family. It would have been one giant family, all, all from Adam and Eve, one giant family. And the family structure of dad, mom, or husband, wife, parents over kids, that would have been replicated into larger structures. The more families you get, and it would have led to tribes with certain men, not all men, certain men leading as the head of their tribes all under the authority of Adam, who is the head over all. Just think of Israel. This is essentially what Israel is with King David at the head over all the tribes of Israel who've got heads and they're, you know, subheads, subheads, as you get down to the family. That was the organization. So uh, the, the, the fall happened, though. But, but before the fall, God had provided, this is a really big point, is God had provided his people with a form of government from the beginning. Even if there had never been a fall, there's a form of government for the people of how they're going to make their way together in life. And it's this husband, wife, parent authority. And then the fall. And now the relationship between husbands and wives is marked by struggle uh, and conflict following the fall. So if you go to Genesis 3, right after the fall, uh, this is part of God comes right after the fall and says, y'all, things are going to be screwed up now. It's going to be hard. 
This marriage thing is going to be hard. He says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's not like the language there is not like, hey, this is the new order of things. No, it's, hey, this is now the perverted order of things. As in, you find that same language just a chapter later in chapter four, when God warns Cain, the first child of Adam and Eve, who ends up murdering his younger brother. I mean, you see the family just totally falling apart here from the beginning. That his sin is going to destroy him if God says, if you don't repent of this. And God says to Cain, says to Cain this is before he murders his brother, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So as a result of, of the fall, God's ordained roles for husbands uh, to lead their wives and for wives to help their husbands, it's now going to be frustrated. So just, just generally speaking, this is where we could talk forever. Generally speaking, rather than laying down their lives and leading their wives sacrificially the way they are supposed to, husbands will now rule over their wives. They're going to rule over their households in a harsh manner. This is, don't, don't take this as in a one-to-one sense, but just the, the vocabulary, the concepts is, it's similar to the way, the way a husband is now going to rule over his wife and household is similar to the way Cain should harshly rule, strictly rule over his sin. No toleration. Likewise, again, generally speaking, not in a one-to-one sense, rather than helping their husbands lead sacrificially, and that's the, this is this term helper that's given to, to Eve. This is this role. We could talk about this. That role helper is in no way derogatory because it is used of God constantly throughout the Old Testament. God is the helper of Israel. It is a high and glorious role. It's just a role. But now, uh, rather than helping their husbands lead sacrificially, wives will, quote, desire to master their husbands in a controlling manner. So again, not in a one-to-one sense, but similar to the way Cain's sin desires to master Cain in a controlling manner. Okay, so fall happens, there's this breakdown. But the good news, the good news is the people of God as an institution, like as a group of people coming together, it, it persists. You know, it's not chaos. And it's all through Eve's childbearing unto the second Adam. It's all through Eve going forward, bearing children all to the second Adam, that is Jesus, who is the new covenant head over his people, the church. And everyone that has come before the church, the people of God, Israel, Abraham's people, Adam and Eve. Uh, so, so here's a question. And that's like drinking. I know that's like drinking from a fire hydrant. Uh, okay, but how, here's a question. How is Jesus, how is Jesus exercising his authority over, just think about this. How is Jesus right now exercising his authority over the growing number of the people of God who are multiplying, who are spreading over all the earth across all the millennia of years before he came, after he came, uh, as we successfully fill the earth? Like, how is he exercising his authority over everyone? The answer is, in parallel fashion to the family, that the church is modeled after the family. The people of God, it's always modeled after the family through the spiritual authority of the ordained heads of the worldwide church family. 
This is who we're talking about. We're talking about the, the offices of elder, of deacons. And so what we're saying is, that is the, the headship of elders and, and deacons. Uh, leading the church is one of sacrifice, and it is supposed to capture that Jesus is the head who is still ruling over the tribes of his people. Ever since the fall, the Son of God has preserved a faithful community, and he's always organized them. Yeah, ever since the fall, Jesus has always, the Son of God has always organized his people by the family uh, structure with its given authority by his design. Okay. Now, the natural response to this, the natural response to this is that the early church, the early church understood that with Jesus' coming and the inauguration of the new covenant, things are different now. That with Jesus, the heavenly, the heavenly kingdom of God, it is broken through into the life of God's people. So, so understandably, people in the early church mistakenly assume that any order or any difference in roles between men and women, husbands and wives, that belongs to, that, that's before Jesus came. That's the Old Testament stuff. We're the New Testament. We're the New Covenant stuff. That doesn't apply anymore. That is totally understandable. But this is what the Bible would refer to as over-realized eschatology. Uh, and that's just a super fancy word uh, that says that heaven, heaven has broken in already, yes, but not fully. Okay, so let's get into the nitty-gritty here. Uh, what about head coverings? What about head coverings? This is what we know. We know in, in Corinth in the first century there was a religious fashion uh, for worshiping the Greek pagan gods where the men would pull their togas up over their heads and pray. There's a bigger, uh, bigger than life-size statue of Caesar Augustus worshiping his pagan gods with his toga over his head. It comes from Corinth. So this is the thing. The new Gentile, Gentile converts coming into the church uh, now, this is what they know about prayer. Oh, I know how to show deference to my God. Yeah, I pull my, uh, my toga over my head. Paul says, no, don't, don't do that. Don't adopt this social convention because it actually goes against our traditions and what we're trying to communicate. And, but just by the way, an aside, the Old Testament high priest, he did wear a turban. So there's <laughs> just stuff you've got to do there with the Old Testament. But it's not an Old Testament thing for the common worshiper, the common Israelite to cover his head and pray unless he's mourning. The yarmulke, that, the, the yarmulke, that's actually not introduced into Judaism until the fifth century. Okay, the social convention for married women, so that's guys, the social convention for married women in Corinth is to wear some kind of head covering. That's just what married women did. They wore a head covering, not a veil, uh, but that showed that they were married. Okay, Paul does insist that uh, women uphold this traditional gesture that indicates, you know, the, the sanctity of marriage. We take marriage seriously still. And at this time, if a woman is caught in adultery, her head is shaved in order to mark her as an adulteress uh, and, and to shame her. It's part of punishment. So here's kind of the thing. Here's kind of the situation is, you know, wives that are coming into the church, what are people going to think of wives if they come to worship and you don't wear your head covering? Like, especially if, what if your husband is not in the church? What if he's a Gentile and he's not converted, but you have, and you show up without your head covering? It's almost going to be like you're communicating to other guys in the church that you are available. And that would be as scandalous as, as being branded an adulteress. It would be like, so what's the, the parallel today? It would be like wives coming to church today and taking off their wedding rings to say, hey, we're all one people now. 
We're all one people. Our worship, it's just like heaven. There's no marriage and there's no husbands and wives here. We're the church. We've already arrived in heaven uh, where there's no merit, you know, there's no marrying and giving in marriage in heaven. That's where we are. Okay, that would be, that would be a confusion of where we are right now. It's true when Jesus comes back, but Paul says we're not there yet, not yet. And this is why angels are mentioned here. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that at the end of all things, the heavenly council, the angel stuff, y'all. In the Bible, we're told that, that at the end, the heavenly council of angels in the church, they're gonna merge into uh, one group. We're, gonna, we're all gonna be, just the, we're all gonna be together worshiping Jesus forever and ever. Like you're gonna get to see and talk to angels and have fellowship with them. And the Bible tells us that right now, building up to that moment, angels are involved in our earthly gatherings. So involved, uh, it's this. Angels recognize that there is presently an authority structure within the church family, and they share a role in it. As in their role is to serve both man and woman. They are our helper. Angels are immeasurably superior in terms of beauty, power, goodness, and yet they serve us. That is their present role. And this is Satan's problem. Ooh, we could go off here. That's Satan's problem. Satan has been called to serve that which is not higher than himself. Humanity. Hebrews 1.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Go to Isaiah 14, go to Ezekiel 28. That rubs Satan and a lot of other angels the wrong way, the subordination of their own interests for someone else who's weaker. But this is the role of all angels. Okay. Here's what we're saying. Main point. Both the family and the church is a grand picture of reality that we are all subjects to Christ. So when we come to worship him, we image it with the structure that he's given us. As in marriage is still a valid picture after the fall and after Jesus comes. Like the family, the marriage is a necessary picture that makes sense of what the church is. And husbands covering their heads and wives not covering their heads at that time in this culture, it blurs the picture of the gospel, of what the church is. For a husband to be the head of his wife is a picture of Jesus sacrificially living for and dying for his bride, the church. For a wife to follow her husband as head is a picture of the bride, the church, following her bridegroom, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, so here, so marriage is still a valid thing. We still need it going on in the church right now. Here's the so what for all of us gathered for worship. <laughs> this is gonna, what's discussed here in one sense is even more unique to and confined beyond marital roles. As in, as in, prophecy is a revelatory gift. Uh, prophecy is a gift of special revelation. And suffice it to say, I'm not gonna say any more than this. Suffice it to say, with, uh, in the bounds of our time limits, well, this is what I can tell you, those revelatory, those revelatory gifts are confined to the age of the apostles. Those gifts have ceased. So in one sense, these verses address a particular set of issues uh, in an early church situation that by God's design no longer exists. What is said here about the exercise of prophecy? It is not directly applicable to the church today because those special revelatory gifts have ceased. Having, having been fulfilled, uh, having fulfilled their God-given purpose in the time of the apostles. Okay, 
so what for all of us who are, so, so what, so what? So what for all of us here who are gathered for worship today? This is the so what. Paul has been, uh, he started this whole long treatment of Christian freedom and its implications for gathered worship, which is still to be done orderly. Christian freedom does not equal anarchy. Not in, gathered, not in the gathered life of the church, nor does it mean we've already arrived in heaven, so we can't act like we've already arrived in heaven. And the role we all have, uh, the role we all have that has been given to all of us, married, married men, married women, single men, single women, we are, we are to imitate Christ to each other and the church. So we're to imitate Christ to each other. We're to be like Christ to each other. And all together, we are the bride of Christ. Guys, girls, you are the bride of Christ. Be imitators of Paul as Paul is of Christ. Jesus shows the bride what it is to submit and to serve. Jesus was fully God. And in his, in his incarnation, he becomes a man. It says in Luke, when he was a kid, he submitted to Joseph and Mary, his parents. He said to Caesar, give to Caesar what Caesar's. So we're supposed to submit to our parents. We're, you know, as little children, we're supposed to submit to the state power for now. But not forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, this is where we're going. Spoiler, when all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father, who put all things in subjection under Jesus, that God may be all in all. The life of the Christian is one of submission. All people are subject to God. All people are subject to Jesus Christ. Guys, girls, male, female, uh, single, we're all under the headship of our Lord. And we're to serve each other the way Christ served us. Head, uh, sorry, husband headship is a picture of that. Here's just a principle for, for this. Uh, uh, commentator said a great leader absorbs more pain than he inflicts. Husbands can't be Jesus. That's true. Only Jesus can be Jesus. But a husband is to love his wife in the way Jesus loved us. And so we are to step in and absorb some of the hurt of living in a fallen world as our wives' best friend. The application of being like Christ, that applies to all of us as we're all servants like Christ. We're all to serve each other like that. As we said, the Son of God had from eternity reigned infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just. We could go on long, suffering, gracious, and yet he does not, this is what we confessed, he does not grasp onto his equality with God the Father, but instead willingly lowers himself to the place of a servant, the servant of mankind, being born, not as a king, but as a peasant in a low condition, submitting himself to live the way we should in our place. Submitting to undergoing the miseries of this life, a life of poverty, where he watches his loved ones die, where he's misunderstood by family, he's rejected by friends, he suffers injustice, he submits himself to a mockery of a trial, and he's unjustly condemned by society. He's tortured, he's murdered, and then in his cursed death on the cross, he submits himself to undergoing the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus is the king of kings who stooped low to become a servant to people like you and me. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. He came not exploiting his power, but using it to serve those weaker than him. That's you. Loved ones, uh, 
the gospel is not the big sacrifices and service we give to Jesus. It's not. The gospel is the sacrifice that Jesus made to serve us. That frees us to love and serve one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We pray that it would free us to love one another and serve one another as you continue to love and lead and serve us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.